This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast with Cornell Schreiber, session number 14. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome back to the Build Wealth Canada show. This is part two of my interview on how to retire early with Julie Kazan from Money Sense Magazine and Ryerson University. Now, in part one, we covered the beginner level questions, and now in part two, we'll go into some of the more intermediate and advanced tips and strategies that you can start applying today to retire early. Lastly, just a quick reminder that the giveaway is still open, so to be entered into the draw, go check out some of the great articles over at moneysense.ca, then go to Build wealthcanada.ca sign up for their free newsletter so that you'll be emailed when new expert interviews come out and when you sign up you get an instant email from me and then just reply to that email and tell me what you'd like covered on a future episode of the show alternatively you can also enter the draw by checking out moneysense.ca and liking build wealth canada on facebook or following me on twitter so that i have a way of getting in touch with you to let you know if you are one of the winners all right that's all for now let's get into part two of the interview for somebody that is maybe already retired or is just about to retire, what are some of the top mistakes that you see individuals like that make? A lot of people are afraid to retire. A lot, you know, people have probably spent a good 40 years of their time saving up their money and their portfolios. Oftentimes, they are so used to saving, saving, saving that they forget that now, okay, now's the time to spend. And I think this happens to a lot of money sense people because they are always in accumulation <laughs> mode. Yeah, I think I might be one of them. <laughs> 60 and they can't believe that, oh, it's decumulation now. No, it can't be this year. It must be next right. year. It's a whole paradigm shift, right? You're just it's not used to it. Shift. You've got these habits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is It is really difficult. It's a behavioral uh, process. It's very difficult for people who are used to saving mm-hmm. to start de- um, decumulation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they always fear that, you know, that there will, there will just will not be enough money in the pot there next year. They have to keep adding to it just to be secure. Uh, I think that is one of the biggest things, at least with money sense readers, they, they love to save. They figured out all the tax angles. They've used every single vehicle possible. They probably have an income property just for safety. And then they hit 65 and it's like, what, you want me to spend? Uh, and they can main- and they continue in saving mode. This is very bad uh, because what eventually happens is you end up losing a lot more of your money than had you at least taken it out earlier from your RSPs, some of these registered instruments, uh, and actually enjoyed it. I can tell you from experience that 75 comes pretty quickly. A lot of 75-year-olds around here where I live can no longer travel, uh, have grandchildren, so they want to spend time with their grandchildren. They're probably doing some babysitting for their grandchildren. There is no opportunity to travel and spend money at that time. If you have missed the window between 60 and 75 to travel and spend some of your money, probably after 75, many fewer people will be able to be in in the sound health they need to really get the most out of the money that they've spent a lifetime saving. What does that mean? That means that when you eventually die, your children and grandchildren will be supremely happy Um, because there will be what you think is a large inheritance. Uh, But I got a letter from a gentleman who uh, inherited a million dollars from his father, and most of this money was in RSPs. And he said, Julie, the million dollars became 600,000 very quickly because of the tax 
that had to be paid right off the top. And then between the four children, once the money was split, there was hardly anything left. They just wished that their dad had spent more money and enjoyed his life a little more. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe the, the key to the, for these people is to do one thing a year that feels frivolous and slowly increase that to two things a year. And um, <clears throat> slowly ease your way into a comfortable, fun retirement. It's really hard to go from hot to cold. But I think with a little bit of planning, people who are savers uh, can start really enjoying life and still feeling comfortable at night, have peace of mind that the money won't just be gone tomorrow and, uh, and uh, they have to keep holding on to every penny. I, I find that is one of the key things with Money Sense readers is the decumulation phase is huge. At the end of the day, even people who have not saved that much money because they had very modest incomes through, um, through their lives and maybe put a little bit away in a TFSA, those people, chances are, will be just fine. They have lived all their lives on a minimum income. They're comfortable with that. They probably uh, have TFSAs that they can draw on that, uh, that, that will help them along the way. They'll probably have CPP and OAS and guaranteed income supplement as well because they will fall into a lower tax bracket. So at the end of the day, they'll probably have a very nice, comfortable lifestyle for a retiree uh, who didn't save very much in retirement. And probably if you met these people at a curling club, you wouldn't be able to tell much difference between the person who had a million dollars and the person who didn't, hadn't saved very much but is on uh, several of the, of the government programs. And so at the end of the day, to me, it's just a state of mind. Uh, if, you do if you're lucky enough to retire early and you did it because you saved enough money to do it, um, then it would be a shame not to at least spend some of that money and get some fun and satisfaction out of it. Um, that to me is the payback, but I know for a lot of people, it's, it's also very, very scary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think when you talk about the typical money sense reader, I definitely fall <laughs> into that category. So that, uh, that's really good advice. That's something I'll have to, to work on, but I, I can see how, if, if you actually make a plan, you actually take all the, I mean, if you're a money sense reader, you probably make plans. You're probably, you're, you know, you probably strategize and look into things and you probably know how to use a spreadsheet. So I think maybe one thing that would help, at least I'm going to try this is actually have sort of a plan where it's, it's all written down and you have, okay, this is how much I am able to withdraw at this age. Right. And so, and so that will help you sleep at night too, because you know, okay, look, I'm able to withdraw X amount per, per year for just frivolous kind of fun things. And I've done the math. I know I'll be okay if I, you know, despite doing this. And so that way you kind of, you know, you don't feel so bad spending. You don't worry about spending. And you're actually kind of enjoying your retirement too, as opposed to just doing mass accumulation. And then... <laughs> I mean, the, the other thing yeah. is, you know, it takes practice, right? So I often mm -hmm. recommend to people who have this behavioral... Um, uh, behavioral attitude towards their money <laughs> yeah. is, uh, yeah. you know, before you're retired, there should be an account, just like you're saving 20% for retirement, save 5% for frivolous spending. And mm -hmm. you should spend it every year. It should be empty by the end of the year. Uh, if you can get used to that, then once you're actually retired and maybe you have a little bit more income or a little bit less income, you can adjust the amount that goes into the frivolous spending account. But the frivolous spending account should always be there, especially for people who have a hard time spending. Right. Right. Um, you might not think that there's many out there, but I see them everywhere, these people. You're looking <laughs> so, at one right now. So, out of the 40, you know, let's say you make, uh, 
I don't know, let's say you're able to save $25,000 a year. Maybe uh, 3000 of that should go into the frivolous spending account that you start practicing to spend your money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it sounds like a trivial thing. It's not that trivial when you get to uh, early retirement and you still can't enjoy your money because, wow, now you don't have a job. So now really you have to keep saving that money. Um, and then when you get to retirement, well, you know, now you're retired, you could live to be 90, so you better still keep saving that money. Right. Um, so I think that practicing to spend is a good thing. And having an account where uh, you say to yourself, okay, to, to be really, you know, successful at retiring early, this account has to be empty every year at the end, by the end of the year, whether my my wife and I go skiing eight times, whether we golf five times during the year, whether we go to Florida twice a year, it has to be empty. If if all we've done is save 20% of our income and never done any sort of frivolous spending up until then or, you know, fun spending, um, then we are not going to be ready for retirement. I think you have to have both both factors. That's really interesting. That's It's like an actual skill that you need uh, if yeah, you want to be a saver. And I would think that a lot of people listening to this podcast might actually fit into that category because you, you care enough to actually uh, listen to a podcast about personal finance. And so maybe you are a saver as well. And it's true. And <laughs> I, I think too many people focus on the round numbers. That's probably going to be, you know, contrary to what people think, the easiest part to get a handle on. The harder part is to change your behaviors. Um, and I think to really change your behaviors is key to enjoying early retirement. I mean, if you have been able to retire early at age 50 and you have this kind of attitude, um, you know, first of all, it's great because you actually retired and gave up a job to do this. That must mean that early retirement is really important to you. Um, so then you really have to take the next step and say it to yourself, you know what, I'm a bit of a, a frugal person. I, I'm a too frugal for my own good. Um, I really do want to enjoy my retirement, and that is going to require that I do some fun spending. So let me approach it from a logical point of view and put that money aside every year and actually spend it. Maybe keep a diary or keep a photo album of things that you did so you can remind yourself how much fun it was spending that money. Uh, these, these types of things, I think, go a long way towards really making for a successful early retirement because really it's not all about the numbers. The numbers is just, I would say, um, 50% of the equation. The other 50% all has to do with your mindset. I've seen people retire with next to nothing and have a wonderful retirement. I've seen people retire with millions of dollars, never have enough, and, and keep living the way they've lived if they were just, you know, university students living in a dorm. So you really have to find the happy medium. That is key. And that is what people should who want to retire early should be aiming for. Both sides of the equation should be met. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Now, Julie, for somebody that's saving for an early retirement, should their asset allocation be different compared to someone that is not planning on retiring early? Um, I don't know. I find that most people who are planning to retire early are fairly conservative people. They want to maintain um, their principal fairly. uh, They want to be able to sleep at night. So I think in both cases, it makes sense to have a conservative portfolio. Um, You know, we always talk about 60 percent equities, 40 percent income approach when you're putting together uh, a portfolio that can work very nicely. Uh, it also depends. I mean, a lot of people who are in their early 50s will have defined benefit pension plans that they can start drawing on as one of the streams of income uh, for them. They might not be as big as as uh, some, but a lot of people who've worked in a job for 25 years can probably retire at 50 in some cases with a defined benefit pension plan. 
or they will be able to draw on one a little bit later on when they qualify, even if they've quit their job. So for those people, I would say if you have guaranteed income streams, um, you could probably go a little bit higher, like 70% equities, 30% income. I wouldn't go very much higher, uh, only because I think people panic, and the behaviors of people once they panic and they see the portfolio they've spent years building up uh, suddenly decrease by half in the matter of three months, um, it can be very, very traumatizing. So I would try to minimize that. Uh, another thing that you can do is also uh, keep, I would like to say, two, two years uh, cash in an account. So if the market does drop, whether you're 50 or 65 or 80, it doesn't matter. Um, there is cash there to pay for your basic expenses. Um, I think that goes a long way towards minimizing the risk, the behavioral risks of people drawing on their money, uh, whatever the portfolio uh, uh, equity to fixed income ratio is. Uh, the, the, the natural tendency is to want to draw on that money uh, if you see it going down. So in that case, I think having the two-year cash in the bank, you know, not on the line of credit, not, not, you know, not any of these fancy instruments, but cash in the bank so that you can say to yourself, you know, I can wait out the storm. I have enough to pay for my hydro my, and my property taxes this year. There's no reason I should panic. And I think that really helps a lot of people get over uh, the fact that uh, markets do fall and the equity portions might bring their portfolio down for quite a bit for several months at a time. Um, so, so I would say, you know, once you get to retirement, a lot depends on what your other income streams are. If you have everything you need through a defined benefit pension, CPP, OAS, you might find you need very little from your portfolio. In that case, you might say, you know what, I'm going to have 80% equity in my portfolio, and I very seldom going to draw on it because I'm doing quite well on these other income streams. That's fine uh, for you because, you know, you do have a lot of fixed income coming in. For people who don't have any fixed income coming in from pensions or, you know, CPP or OAS because they've retired early, for those people, I still like a 60-40 split between equities and fixed income. Okay, okay. And would you vary that by age? I know some individuals have different formulas they use for saying, you know, take your age, where, where they factor in age, and then that asset allocation varies depending on, on how old they are, um, so that as they get older, it, it becomes less risky and, and more into fixed income. Um, is that something that you use as well? Or do you just like to stick sort of with the standard, um, what you were saying, like the 60-40? The yeah, I think people tend to mess around with their portfolio way too much. I, I you know, I like to think that 60-40, you could start it at any, like, you know, my daughter and son have a 60-40, let's say, and it's just fine. And it could take you right to age 95, most people don't want to be there. The more you tinker with your, your portfolio and then you tinker with the asset allocation, I think the more tendency there is to make a mistake or to also just be paralyzed, you know, just say, well, I don't know, now it's a 60-40, uh, maybe it should be at 50-50, and then you're constantly going over your head what these ratios should be when at the end of the day, it doesn't really make a huge amount of difference if you've already got enough to live on. Um, you know, if your portfolio is small, I would say that even in that case, there's a there's a good case to be made for 60-40 or even 50-50 because you want to preserve capital. I, I think that someone who has a small portfolio, the last thing they need is an aggressive portfolio, especially if they're very risk-averse. So I, I like to think of, uh, you know, um, the three bears and uh, too hot, too cold and just right. I think 60-40 is just right for most people, uh, almost everybody. It is actually easy to do, simple to set up. 
And uh, for people who aren't number crazy, uh, you, you set it and you forget it. And I think that's what most people who want to retire early are really looking for, something they can set and forget and go on and enjoy their life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. No, thank you. That's really useful. And I do like how you mentioned the whole sort of having that two year, um, ex uh, two years of expenses saved up. Um, I know I had a, a guest recently on the show who retired early, and that was something that he echoed as well. Um, just because, yeah, if, if the markets do take a tumble, you you don't stress out that much about it because you know you've got sort of a two year buffer to uh, to basically try to ride it out uh, as much as you can. So that's great. So I guess before you do the early retirement, you would make sure that you have those two years of um, your two, two years of expenses saved up. And, and I guess, would you put them in a, like a high interest savings account or something extremely safe like that? Yeah, something extremely safe like a high interest savings account. And if, for example, I had to start withdrawing from that money for a year because I, my portfolio just was not spinning off money because the economy was so bad or you know the markets were so bad, then once the markets become good again, I top that two years up again. So so that's that's key. Like once you actually draw down on that portfolio, then the following year when when markets are up again and maybe you're getting a ten percent return instead of four percent return, you should top up that um, cash account. But yes, something like a daily interest savings account where you have the peace of mind that you can go there tomorrow and take the money out and you know and pay for that roof bill that was eight thousand dollars and you weren't expecting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, no, that's great. That's great. Um, one uh, another question I had, and we already touched on this a little bit, but I just want to make sure we didn't miss anything. So, so when you retire early, you aren't likely to get CPP or, or you know, not, not as much. Yeah, you're not going to get OAS yet. Um, you might or might not, I guess, get your your pension if you have one through your work. Uh, are there any other things that we should be considering, um, sort of over that gap before before we start getting all these benefits from the government? Or is that pretty much it? I, I you know, I think the, um, like I said, the tax, the tax consequences and income smoothing with RRSPs will be key for those people. Mm -hmm. The other thing is there is a product called annuities, right? That uh, that are very popular amongst Canadians. And what annuities are? It's 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 sort of uh, I like to tell people that it's like buying a pension. What you are is you are handing over an amount of money, and in return for that huge amount of money, you will get income monthly income or quarterly income for life. So for example, a typical annuity might be, um, you know, if uh, I would hand over to an insurance company or a financial institution, Manulife and, and all of these, there's lots of them out there, um, $250,000 of my million dollar portfolio. And, uh, and then what would happen is the insurance company would give me um, paid, uh, you know, a certain amount of income per life. In the case of two hundred fifty thousand, probably what I could expect is about twelve to fourteen thousand dollars a year per life. Now, there are certain stipulations with that. Um, if you die early, the payments stop, and the company gets to keep your money. A lot of Canadians don't like that. They like to think that they will be leaving, you know, money to their children or grandchildren, or, or will have it there for themselves. But I think annuities work really well for some people. If you know that you can purchase an annuity. Uh, please don't do so at 50. You'll pay a lot of money for it. Uh, now's not a good time to buy them because interest rates are low. But if you're considering of doing that, let's say around age 60, then that should be those payments should be factored into your um, portfolio calculations and what you should be able to withdraw from your portfolio earlier on. So it's for people who are have no pension income. Uh, oftentimes, an advisor will say it's really great to have an annuity 
that will cover all your basic expenses. So let's say, you know, property taxes, hydro, electricity, maybe some grocery bills. Uh, and usually that's about twelve to $18,000 for most people. Those very basic things um, will always be covered, even in a down market. Uh, I think it's a product you can look at with a, with a specialist. There's all kinds of permutations on annuities. So get someone who's a specialist on annuities. But it is a sort of a peace of mind type of product. Uh, people say to me, well, what if the financial institution goes belly up? Mm, you know, I think annuity payments will keep coming. Uh, I, I wouldn't worry too much about these extreme situations. It probably will not happen. And chances are, even if it does, you'll have another 750000 in your portfolio anyhow, right? Uh, you, know, you can't be right every single time. But I think annuities have proven themselves to be a, a long-term product that's fairly safe and secure for Canadians. So it's something you might want to consider as a building block. Doing so will allow you probably to spend a little bit more in your 50s. Um, so that's the only reason that I mentioned them for, for early retirees. Is if you are considering buying an annuity in your 60s or 70s, is probably a good time. Around between 65 and 70 is probably a good time to buy one. Uh, right you know, when CPP and OAS kicks in, then you'd have your annuity income. And you probably wouldn't need a portfolio at that point anymore if, if you have saved and bought the annuity. So it can, it can work very nicely for those people. Okay, that sounds good. So I guess, yeah, so it sounds like a good strategy to consider would be you have your balanced portfolio and then maybe you purchase annuities when you're older and kind of use that just in case, let's say your sequence of returns, you know, things go bad and you end up losing a lot of your money really early in retirement because of the markets, then you at least have that annuity in there. Yes to be able to sort of sustain you and pay for the sort of that minimum amount and let you ride things out just until the market recovers, basically. Would that be sort of a good strategy to consider? Yes, yes, exactly right. And, you know, if you have a good defined benefit pension plan, probably don't get an annuity. It'll put you into a higher tax bracket and it will sort of defeat all the work you did in, in uh, you know, tax planning up until that point. But if you have no guaranteed income streams, very little CPP, very little OAS, but you've built up three or four hundred thousand in a portfolio, like a lot of um, you know single, especially single people that I talk to have, they love the idea of having that uh, income stream that covers all of their expenses. They're not really, really active investors. They don't really understand portfolios that much. Uh, having an annuity can eliminate a lot of that. Um, indecision about, you know, should I have 60, 40 in my portfolio, all those things, they're, they're important, but something that are not very palatable to some, uh, some people. So annuities tend to be guarantees. People like guarantees, especially when they're going into retirement, which is why we have things like CPP and OAS. Um, they protect us from our own bad behaviors and the bad behaviors of the stock so uh, if you're one of these people who just wants a guarantee, you don't want to worry about returns in your portfolio, a very nice option for you might be just to hand, up, hand over a large chunk of your portfolio, get an annuity, and the payments will come every month like a pension, and you'll never even have to worry about a stock portfolio again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, that's good. That's great to hear. And then and you said for someone that's pretty young, like let's say someone wants to retire in their 30s or 40s, is that generally not really a good strategy because they just they just become a lot more expensive essentially and that's right they become hugely expensive and uh you 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 know if you had the money to pay for an annuity when you're 30 i mean think about it the life insurance company is going to have to pay you a certain amount of money every year for life um, so the, the more things that are uh you know the less years they have to pay that the less you have to pay to get one so if you have you know if you have the capability of actually earning an income uh, withdrawing from RSPs and TFSAs, 
before age 50, I would do that over, uh, and then, and then maybe at 50, 55, 60, talk to a planner about annuities, but don't buy them too early. You'll be, you'll just be spending too much money on them. And, you know, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you might die at 60. And if you bought your annuity at 55, that money's gone in many cases. I mean, you, if you have sort of, you know, okay, if I die, my spouse gets the annuity. Um, usually the annuities are a, a much lower percentage than what the main person was getting. Right. Okay. That sounds good. And then also, Julia, I want to ask you about um, the subject of a safe withdrawal rate. 4% is often used as the safe withdrawal rate. What are your thoughts on that? And uh, basically, yeah, what, what we should be withdrawing uh, in retirement, especially early retirement, in order to make it as sustainable as possible? Well, I think the 4% withdrawal rate, um, let's, let's assume you had a million dollar portfolio, you needed $40,000. 4% withdrawal rate would give you the $40,000. You wouldn't have to do anything else. You wouldn't need part-time income. You wouldn't need rental income. Um, it, it would basically cover all of your expenses. Um, you know, there are some people who have said that's pretty high, that it, it because of longevity, we should probably be going more towards a 3% withdrawal rate. I would tend to think that probably a comfortable uh, withdrawal rate is somewhere in the middle around 3.5%. I would feel comfortable with that. Uh, especially because CPP and OAS and all these other things kick in later on. Like I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage people to take so little out of their portfolio that they're going to be living in practically in poverty just to be able to, you know, not do, not work. So I think 3.5 to 4% works pretty nicely across the board, right? You know, it's like 60, 40. I think 4% is simple to remember. You don't have to change it very much. Um, if you do have a year where, let's say, you do work part time and you have a contract, a lot of people who are on who are semi retired, this is what they do. They'll take two years off and then they'll do a contract for a year. I mean, the years when you have extra income, just don't withdraw from your portfolio. And I think that smooths out that four percent withdrawal rate. So I, I'm all for between three point five and four percent withdrawal rate. There are some people who will say, "Oh, we're living to a hundred. The withdrawal rate should be two percent." I think it's just as much a danger that your money will, you know, your, your fortune will outlive you and you won't have enjoyed it. So I, I like to think that 3.5 to 4% works fairly nicely. Okay. Okay. That's great. And also one other thing that, and we covered this already a little bit, but I just also want to make sure we didn't miss anything. Um, and that's about how to use our TFSAs, our RRSPs and our unregistered accounts. How, how to use those in our sort of pre-retirement phase when we're still saving and then how to use them once we actually are retired. So we already talked about how RSPs are are better to, to are a good strategy to use that beforehand um, be, uh, and then use TFSAs afterwards once the basically the OAS and the CPP kick in, for example. Is, is there any other anything you wanted to add in regards to that and, and that kind of strategy or some other strategies worth considering? I think it's important if you have the opportunity to draw down the, the RSPs to do so. Um, you, even if all you're doing is taking some of that income and transferring it. I mean, now we have the TFSA contribution of $10,000 or close to $11,000 annually. Um, do that. Take, you know, if all you do is take the $11,500 out of your RSP and put it into your TFSA uh, for later on, I think that's much better um, in the long term because the tax consequences are much are, are basically there aren't any until you die for the TFSA. So in that case, you can build your your portfolio. You can get all this capital gains growth for um, 
and pay no taxes. Uh, to me, those are seminal years between six, 50 and 65 to withdraw. Uh, not your whole RSP, but certainly if you have a big one to start taking out, you know, 30, 40% of it over those years. Um, that to me is still key. The non-registered account is also important uh, for a lot of people. Once they, they do have the RSP, they do have the TFSA, and then they have the non-registered account. Uh, so they're basically covered in all those things. To me, it would always be withdraw from your RSP first, withdraw from your non-registered account second, and the TFSA last. That would be the order I would do it in. Now, that's assuming you can contribute to all of those. A lot of people can't. For those people, I would say contribute the, as much as you can to your TFSA uh, and forget about your RSP and just have a non-registered account. If you are only making 30, you know, one gentleman I talked to is making $28,000 a year. You know, if you, if you can top up your TFSA, you're doing great. Um, and then once you get to age 50, part of your plan might be, you know, first of all, you're used to living on less, so you can probably live on less from uh, withdrawals from your TFSA at that point, or just work half-time and some of the withdrawals can come from your TFSA or a savings account if you have that. With those people, you don't want to jeopardize uh, being eligible for the guaranteed income supplement in your 60s. That is about $550 a month. That's about six or $7,000 a year for life. Um, and for those people, it makes no sense to have an RRSP. They're not going to get much of a refund. They're um, probably much better off doing the TFSA and having a little bit of money in a non-registered account for emergencies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great. That's great. Uh, no, thank you, Julie. That's, um, that's all the questions that I had on my end. Uh, but actually, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about where we can learn more from you? Absolutely. Uh, I'm a senior writer with uh, Money Sense magazine, so a lot of you might be readers already, but if you're not, I hope you'll check us out on our website. It's uh, moneysense.ca. Uh, most of our, uh, uh, our content is on there. We put out 12 issues a year, so if you want to subscribe, there are now eight issues that come out in print for uh, eight times a year, and we also have four digital issues that appear only on our website, uh, so I hope you'll check us out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely uh, vouch for money since I've been a reader for a really, really long time, and the quality is just incredible. And they they really they really make sure that you know what they put in there um, is correct, that it makes sense. Um, it's basically an extremely reputable source for anything personal finance related in Canada. So, um, so definitely, uh, I highly, highly recommend uh, checking out Money Sense. And I would also add that if anyone has a question, we're always uh, you know on the other end waiting for your questions, hoping to answer them. Uh, if you can shoot us uh, whatever your financial planning question might be at letters at moneysense.ca, uh, we'll try to get you some help to resolve your own personal issues. That's great. That's great. Thanks, Julie. I'll, I'll be sure to put that, that email as well in the show notes and I'll put a link for Money Sense as well. So that, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I thought that was... Thank you so much, Pranav. Oh, no problem. It was yeah, extremely valuable. I'm sure a lot of the listeners got a lot out of it too. And yeah, if you have any questions for Julie, you can email her at the email she gave or you can always leave a comment as well. So um, yeah, thanks a lot and take care. No worries. Have a great day. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Julie.
Well, I hope you enjoyed part two of the interview with Julie. If you did enjoy it, I'd greatly appreciate it if you went to iTunes or Stitcher to subscribe for free to the podcast so that you'll automatically get all the latest episodes. Also, if you could give this podcast a rating on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate that too. Like I mentioned in one of the earlier episodes, subscriptions and ratings have a huge impact on how much exposure the podcast gets. And the more exposure it gets, the more experts want to come on the show. So definitely it benefits you as the listener as well. All right. That's it. Have a great week and I'll see you next week with a new expert interview. And I hope that you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And once again, don't forget to check out moneysense.ca. That's where Julie is, the senior editor, and has some really, really good articles out there. So definitely don't forget to check them out as well. All right, take care and see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.